Amen. Thank you. Thank you, worship team. God bless you for leading us on this day, this Christmas day, and I want to say Merry Christmas to all of you. Amen. And nowhere is that phrase more appropriate than from one believer to another on Christmas Day in God's house on the Lord's Day. I'm not going to say much about this, but we have kept our doors open today when many churches have decided to close them. And and, I, and I'm not going to disparage anybody for making that decision or for not coming here today. There are lots of reasons that might keep you away from uh, Sunday fellowship from time to time. I fully understand that. But let me just tell you why we kept our doors open. In Scripture, Christians are never commanded to gather on Christmas Day. It's not, a, it's not something that we're called to, to celebrate Christmas in a formal way way as a local church body. However, we are called to not forsake the assembling of ourselves together. And traditionally, that is on what is called the Lord's Day, the first day of the week, traditionally the day upon which he rose, and we call it Sunday. And so we want to keep our doors open on Sunday for anyone who would come to worship the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. Secondly, thank you. Amen. Amen. That's true. And, and you know, much, much has been said that, that sometimes we want to close the doors on Sundays to allow people to celebrate with their families, to be with family. I, I love fa- My family is here today all the way from California. <laughs> Incidentally, that was a long trip. We had a road playlist. I, I posted a, a playlist that I was listening to music. One of the songs you might know, it starts out, in my mind, I'm going to Carolina. <laughs> now, we had our own lyrics that we substituted. It continued on and said, uh, let's see, can't you just feel the sunshine? Not much sunshine the last few days. The people at Lambs are so kind. Could have stayed in California, but the taxes are way too high. Everybody, so I'm going to Carolina in my mind. All right, it's a great Christmas song. Yes. But family is important, and I'm grateful to have my family. I hope you have your family here today, but I know this. Even if you don't have your immediate family, you've got the family of God right here in this house. But as important as it is for families to celebrate Christmas, here's what I want to make sure we all understand. Families should celebrate Christmas, but folks, Christmas is not actually about family. You understand? The world has made Christmas about family. Family is one of the wonderful things that we enjoy uh, at Christmas time, and Christmas is for families to celebrate, but the center point of Christmas is Jesus Christ. And it is a singular event in history that involves Jesus Christ. But it's not merely the birth of a baby. It's much, much more. This event in human history, we call it the incarnation. Now, what does that mean? You know, the famous Christian apologist, C.S. Lewis, 
who wrote the Chronicles of Narnia. He wrote Mere Christianity, one of the most famous Christians of the 20th century, C.S. Lewis. Did you know he was not always a Christian? There was a point he was not a believer in Jesus Christ as the Savior of the world. Not only that, he didn't even believe in God. C.S. Lewis, at one point, was an atheist. He was a very brilliant man, and he just reasoned that there could not be such a thing as God. Why, if there were a God, by definition, God would have to be so high, so lofty, that man could not know him. He would be inscrutable. There'd be no way that man could know a God, by definition, who would be so great, and it would be utterly ridiculous for God to create lesser beings like us who could not know him. And therefore, God could not exist. Why, man could not know God any more than he reasoned, this English uh, professor of, of literature. He reasoned that man could not know God any more than Hamlet could know Shakespeare. But then he thought, wait a minute. Hamlet could know Shakespeare. He could know Shakespeare if... Shakespeare had written himself into the play. And then it dawned on him. That is precisely what God did. God, through this singular event in human history, he did something by which man could know him. Through this event that the entirety of the New Testament is the explanation of that the entirety of the Old Testament points ahead to it is through the birth of Jesus Christ that God became a man. He had written himself into our play. I want you to open your Bibles if you got them today to John 1. We're going to look at about six verses here today. This is not the traditional Christmas text. That would have to be Luke chapter 2. In fact, later I'm going to read Luke chapter 2. My, my kids, you may think me cruel, my kids have not opened one present yet. And before we do, and this isn't my command, my youngest daughter would have it no other way. Everly is seven years old. Her favorite part of Christmas is when we open Luke 2 and we read the Christmas narrative. This is not that kind of a narrative. We look at John 1, and it says, I'm just going to read it quickly to you. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. And in Him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And then I want you to skip down to verse 14. It says, and the Word became flesh. And dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son of the Father, full of grace and truth. And this text, in a way that Luke does not fully, or Matthew, this text speaks to the, the power and the magnitude of the incarnation. Now, what is an incarnation? That first Christmas is the event that is called the incarnation. That's what we're celebrating what is it? John maps it out for us. Now, to understand what it is fully, you've got to understand the eternal origin 
of the one that we call Jesus. Let's look once again at verse 1 as we walk through this. It says, in the beginning was the Word. Uh, Matthew's gospel gives us the genealogy of Jesus' family on his father's side, Joseph's side, and it's traced back to Abraham. Luke's gospel gives us the genealogy of Jesus' family on his mother Mary's side, and it traces back even further all the way to Adam. John goes back farther than either one. He doesn't just go back to Abraham. He doesn't just go back to Adam. It says in the beginning, the beginning And so what you need to understand is that the incarnation is God reaching from eternity. Not some point in human history. He reaches from eternity. Jesus was not created. He was born. All people are born. You have a birthday. I have a birthday. Jesus had a birthday, but he was not simply born. He was incarnated. He was incarnated. He's the eternal son of God. John calls him the word. He's the word. The Greek word here is logos or logos, depending on your uh, school of Greek. John starts in the beginning. The beginning of what? Is there another book in your Bible that starts that way? In the beginning, Genesis, right? We all know how the the Bible begins. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And so what is this the beginning of? It's the beginning of creation. It's the beginning of the physical universe as we know it. So in the beginning was the word means that at creation, this being the word, the one that we call Christ, he was already there. He was already present. He existed prior to everything that we see before all of this was created, the word was there. He goes on, he says, and the word was with God and the word was God. And so what we have seen in John's gospel so far, two things, in the beginning was the word. Christ was preexistent. And then it says, and the word was with God and the word was was God. Not only is he pre-existent, he is co-existent. He is co-existent with the Father. We've got the doctrine of the Trinity right here. Later, Jesus is going to say, you've seen me, you've seen the Father. I and the Father are one. And so this is a divine being. This is an eternal being. Verse 2 continues, it says, he was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him. Without him, was not anything made that was made. And so when we say God created the heavens and the earth, what are we really saying? We're saying Jesus created the heavens and the earth. Through the Son, the Father worked and made everything that we see. Colossians 1 says that Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on the earth, Visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. Now, why is he called the word? When God created, how did God create? Did he take hammer and nails? Did he take clay? Did he fashion things from pre-existing material? No, it was ex nihilo. It was out of nothing. What did he do? He spoke. He spoke it into being. Let there be, and there was. And when you speak, what do you use? You use words. And so Christ created God the Father speaking through his word, the Christ. And in the Old Testament, it is the word of God that he gave to men uh, through men like Moses, the prophets, 
Uh, It is by his word that he directed us, he guided us, he moved us, he commanded us, he instructed us always by his word. That's how God revealed himself to man. That's how God revealed his will to man, always by his word. And the Jews understood that. And they associated that concept of the word of God with deity. And so John uses this idea and calls Christ the word so as to signify his deity. But it's by the word of God. Apart from God's word, we cannot know God. It's the only way to know God. This time of year, everybody's looking for the perfect gift. I hope that you found the right gift for the people that you love. If you ain't found it by now, it's too late. You, you might go out and find it, but you should pick up a, a, an I'm sorry card because <laughs> you're late. Uh, what's the best gift you ever got? Think about it. It's popped into your head right now. Maybe it's something from childhood. Maybe it's something from your spouse. One of the best gifts I ever got, I got for my wife. Now, I'm not going to get spiritual and say, you know, it's our children or it's, it was her hand in marriage, of course. But I'm going I'm to be very, very superficial here with you, all right? This is a physical present that I received, and it was awesome. And it was a few years back. What you need to know about me, I'll divulge this. My favorite musical artist is Billy Joel. All right? I know I've just let a lot of you down. You were expecting, you were expecting some, some Christian artist or gospel artist or something like that. The longer you know me, the less impressed you'll be, okay? I love the piano man. I make no apologies for it. I know all his songs. When I was in high school, our high school choir was taking a trip. We had to raise funds, and we had a celebrity item auction. And we all wrote to different celebrities, and we got autographed items back. We auctioned them off for money. And I wrote to my favorite artist, Billy Joel. And he sent me back an autographed, glossy photo. It says, cheers, Billy Joel. Well, my problem is, I didn't want to auction that. But the whole point was to raise money, and so begrudgingly, sadly, I put it up for auction. Well, a good friend of mine, her dad knew I was a big fan. He, he bid on it, won it, and gave it to me. Isn't that nice? Yeah. See, that's worth clapping about. Billy Joel, the piano man. It's still in my office today, all right? I'll show it to you. Anyway, up until that point, that was one of my, my favorite presents that I ever got. But then my wife topped it. A few years ago, we had a little getaway, went to San Diego, and we're having lunch downtown, Horton Plaza, and my wife surprises me with two tickets to see Billy Joel live. I'd never seen him live. It's the one thing I'd never done. And it was that night. It was his only concert on the West Coast. She was real sneaky. She hacked into my Facebook. She... She, she, she got rid of all my notifications about Billy Joel. I didn't even know he was coming. And she snagged two tickets. She got them before they sold out in a matter of minutes. And we went. We had great seats. And we sang, sing us a, a song, You're the Piano Man, with 40,000 fans. It was amazing. And there you go. Bucket list item. Checked off. Fantastic gift. Now I've done it all as far as my fandom is concerned. I know all his songs. I've got his autograph. I've seen him in concert. Do I know Billy Joel? I don't know Billy Joel. He doesn't know me from a hoot owl. All right? What would it take? I mean, I got his autograph. I mean, I've seen him. I know all about him. I know how many ex-wives he's got. (laughs) I know the lyrics to all his songs. 
but I don't know him because he's never spoken to me. Now, if we could have coffee, sit down, you know, I'd have the opportunity to know him, but I don't know him. And apart from the word, man cannot know God. Hebrews 1, 1 through 2, God who at various times and in various ways in times past spoke to the fathers by the prophets, he has in these last days spoken to us by his son whom he has appointed heir of all things through whom he also made the worlds. And so the Jews understood what John was saying when he said that this being is the word. This is a divine being. He is demonstrating the deity of Christ. And then in verse four it says, in him was life. He has life in and of himself. Not only is he preexistent, not only is he coexistent, he's self-existent. He has life. It's, it's, it's like uh, he is self It's like that phrase in Exodus when God says, I am that I am. At the burning bush and Moses encounters Yahweh, he says, I am. What does that mean? I am self-existent. It is the classic statement of self-existence. This is the uncreated one. He came from nowhere. He simply is. He simply always has been. And, and when Jesus would, would utter a phrase like this throughout his ministry, as he did before the Pharisees, when uh, they are confronting him, and they're talking about Abraham, and he says, I tell you, Abraham rejoiced to see my day. They say, you're not even 50 years old, and you speak of Abraham seeing you. He says, I tell you the truth, before Abraham was, I am. In the Greek, ego eimi. Did the Jews know what he meant when he said that? Oh, yes, they did, because they picked up rocks and they tried to kill him for blasphemy, for claiming to be God. He is self-existent. And this verse four goes on, it says, in him was the life, and that life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And now we're speaking of light, because not only had there been silence, see, he was the word of God when there had been nothing but 400 years of silence. There were no prophets in the land. God had not spoken for four centuries until he sent Christ. But not only had there been no words from the Lord for four centuries, there'd been no glory. There'd been no light. The glory of God had been absent from the land. This is the glory that filled the holy of holies in the temple. And because of their disobedience, God had taken it from Israel. Even when they rebuilt the temple after coming back into the land from Babylon, there's no glory there. And now the light has come. The word has come and the light has come. It's the coming of God in the form of man because this incarnation is not just God reaching from eternity. This is God reaching into humanity. God becomes a man. Look down at verse 14. It says, and the word became flesh. This concept is towering. It is massive. That God would take on flesh. The word incarnation is God becoming man. Incarnation has as its root the word carne. Now, we just came from California. I love me some Mexican food. I will throw down some carne asada. What does carne mean? It means flesh, it means meat. 
God took on this human flesh that you and I are encased in, that we walk around in. He took it on. And John's account here gives us a perspective we don't really get from Luke. We don't really get from Matthew. We read those narratives. We, we look at that manger and it's a sweet story and there's power there. But when you read John and you understand what this event really was, that manger takes on a whole new significance. That was God in that manger. The word became flesh. To think that God, the holy, omniscient, omnipotent, omnipresent one, would take the form of one of his lowly creatures. And yet notice it says the word became flesh. He became flesh. Uh, he simply changed forms, right? He didn't cease being the word. It assumes his preexistence. It assumes his deity. But the word did not stop being the word in order to become a little baby. That little baby was the word. He was God. Jesus did not merely have an origin. He had a point of union. Divinity and perfect humanity, undiminished glory, and, and the reality of this earth and our frailty was united in one perfect form. The invisible became visible. The infinite took on the finite. And not only did God become a man, but through Jesus' birth, God interacted with man. He just, he didn't just take on the form of a human being. What does it say? It says that he dwelt among us. He dwelt among us. And this is one of the most amazing things, that that which is fully God became fully human. That's astounding enough, but then he dwelt among us. He lived among us. That's what Emmanuel means, God with us. It's not simply God and us. It's, got, it's not God near us. That doesn't do us any good. It's God with us. He was among us. The word dwelt is the Greek verb eskonosen. It means to tent. It means literally he pitched his tent. He pitched his tent among us. He moved in. He holed up like Cousin Eddie. Well, not that annoying, but he moved in. He settled in. He didn't observe from afar. He connected with man. He interacted with man. That had never happened before. In your Bible, oh, you've got some instances in the Old Testament that are very interesting. Uh, some pre-incarnate appearances of Christ. We call them Christophanies. They're a fascinating study. There's a being called the angel of the Lord that you read about in the Old Testament, appeared to Abraham and elsewhere, and scholars say this is Jesus before his birth. He shows up in the Old Testament. Love to study that, love to read about that, but those are few and far between, and they're over like that. This is different. This is a sustained intermixing with mankind. And then John says, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father full of grace and truth. He's talking about glory again. We're back to the light. The glory that had been absent for so long and now here, it's like God, he's turned the lights on but this is no ordinary light. This is not any ordinary glory. This is not man's glory. 
This is glory as of the only Son of the Father. It is a glory connected to God and to God alone. There could be no glory like this. We can't generate it. We can't concoct it. We can't fathom it. Man has a glory, but it pales by comparison to the glory of God. Our glory is a false glory. It's predicated on human works. And you know what? I think that most of the time at Christmas, we obsess over a false glory. We don't fixate on the true glory of God, the light of the world. We fixate on those superficial lights, the work of our own hands. Why, it goes to the heart of the secular holiday itself, doesn't it? I mean, what are we told our whole life from childhood on? What do we need to make sure we're doing as we get closer to Christmas? You better watch out. You better not cry. You better not pout. I'm telling you, some of you about to bust into Santa. All right, (laughs) slow down. Slow your roll, all right? Now, I know that's a valuable tool for us parents in the room. We're grateful to have that in our back pocket sometimes. I admit I've, I've pulled that out, right? But we, you know, he, he's making a list. He's checking it twice. Gonna find out. This is the part. Who's naughty or nice? And what's the, and I'm not about to go on an anti-Santa tirade here, folks. I promise. It's fun, okay? But listen, what's the subtle theology here underlying this? That if you are just good enough, you can earn favor. You can earn favor. There is a works-based ideology in the way that we have framed Christmas. Now, I gotta be honest, there's a whole lot of kids that get presents that ain't that good. (laughs) And I was one of them, okay? They tend to get presents anyway. Maybe Santa's a universalist. I don't know. But whatever this ideology is, whether it's a favor achieved by works or it's a favor uh, regardless of works, neither concept fits Christ. If we could earn the favor of God, or if his favor did not require a standard, we didn't need that little child to be born and laid in that manger. He didn't need to come if we could earn the favor of God. No, we needed the incarnation. We needed God to become a man. We needed the pre-existent, divinely co-existent, self-existent life that was the light of all mankind who would be good enough in a way that we could not, who would die in our place, a standard bearer, a substitute sacrifice for the sin of all people because every single one of us is on the naughty list. Until we put our faith in Christ. And then we are on the righteous list. We're in the Lamb's book of life. And so this Christmas I submit to you. If all you're doing is putting up a tree. Exchanging gifts with your loved ones. Singing carols by the fire. All wonderful. Even if all you're doing is reciting the details of Luke chapter 2. 
If that's all you're doing, you're not really celebrating Christmas because you've got to look at that child in the manger and understand who he was and who he is. That he was the light of the world. That he was God in the flesh. The pre-existent, co-existent, self-existent one. Are you listening to the divine word made flesh who is speaking about who he is and who you are and what your need is and how he can fill it? I'd like to share something with you right now. And our ushers are going to, uh, well, you've already got your candles, so you're ready to go. If you need a candle, you just raise your hand, we'll get you one. But I want to share something with you right now. Some years back at my last church, we made this video. I had created some artwork, and we had some very bright fellows on staff that took that artwork and they animated it. They used software and they, they, they set it to animation. And through this medium, we told a story, and it's a story that you may have heard before if you can remember Paul Harvey. It's a story that illustrates exactly how it is that God could become one of us. Take a look. Ben Warren was a good man, an honest fellow, decent and generous. He loved his country, loved his family, but hated hypocrisy. So when his wife asked him to come with her and the kids to the Christmas Eve worship service, he stood his ground, shook his head and said, no, I'm sorry to disappoint you, but no, I'd be a hypocrite. I don't believe any of it. Why? If there were a God, and I don't believe there is, why would he bother to come to earth as one of us to save our sorry souls? It's fine if you guys go. I just can't stomach all the Christmas story stuff. You all go, and I'll wait up for you. Knowing her husband was just too honest to pretend he believed the story about God coming to earth as a man, Cynthia drove the kids to the church as the snow began to fall. Getting more wood for the fire, Ben noticed the snow flurries getting heavier. Inside, he stoked the fire and sat down to read, quickly dozing off by the warm hearth. After a while, he was startled by a thudding sound, and then another. Was someone tossing snowballs at the window, and then more thuds. Outside, Ben found a flock of birds huddled miserably in the snow. They had been caught in the storm and, in a desperate search for shelter, had tried to fly through his picture window. Well, he couldn't let the poor, confused creatures lie there and freeze. He had an idea. Quickly, he put on a coat and boots, grabbed some matches, and tramped through the deepening snow to the barn. He opened the doors wide and lit his camping lantern, but the birds wouldn't come in. Surely food will entice them to come in. So he hurried back to the house, got some bread, broke it into crumbs on the snow. The birds did not come to the warm, lighted barn. They ignored the crumbs, still flopping helplessly in the snow. He tried catching them, but they scattered in every direction except toward the warmth and safety of the barn. Finally, Ben realized they were afraid of him. 
To them he reasoned, I'm a huge, strange, and terrifying creature. If only I could let them know they can trust me. I'm not trying to hurt them, I'm trying to save them from this storm. But how? How could I? Every move I make frightens them. The snowfall continued, but the lost birds simply would not follow Ben into the barn. They would not be led or cajoled or shooed because they feared him. If only I could be a bird, he thought to himself, and fly with them and speak their language. <laughs> what a miracle that would be, he chuckled, imagining himself to be a bird. Smiling, he said, if I could be one of them, they could see and hear and understand. I would tell them, don't be afraid. I've come to lead you to the warmth and safety of... The warmth and safety of... At that very moment, distant church bells rang out. O come, all ye faithful. Suddenly speechless, Ben looked at the helpless bird so in need of saving, so blind to the lantern's light, so ignorant of the sanctuary of the barn, so unaware their Savior was nearby. And quietly, Ben looked to heaven and dropped to his knees in the snow. You know, when, when those shepherds ran to Bethlehem after their angelic encounter and they saw Mary and the Christ child and their faith was made sight, the next thing that they did was they ran and they told everyone that they could. Because this news of God becoming a man was not something that they could hold in. They had to let it out. It was a light that could not be held under a bushel. It had to be spread. How much greater is the news of the full gospel of Jesus Christ? Not just that God became a man, but what God came to be a man in order to do. To go to the cross on our behalf. Folks, this is how Christianity spread around the world. That those 12 disciples, they went and they took the gospel. And the people that they reached went and they took the gospel. And what started with the evangelism of a handful of humble shepherds swept around the world. And look, here we are today on Christmas Day, on a Sunday, gathered together, the product of people who could not hold that message to themselves. And it is incumbent upon each and every one of us to take this light and to spread it. And it's not spread in some consumeristic fashion. It is biblically spread from one person to another, to another, to another. I'm gonna take this candle right here and I'm gonna come down and from this single flame, 
we're going to fill this room with light to signify the gospel that needs to go out and spread around the world. And we'll do this as we sing the words to this familiar carol. Silent night, holy night, all is calm, all is bright, round the unvirgin mother and child, Sing on.
you all and I want to just say thank you Lord Jesus that you came that you the light of the world came down here to be among all of us in order that we might know you that we might have the same life that is in you by which you are self-existent God that we may have that life in us eternal life But Lord, while we are here in this fallen place, this dark place, may we be the light, may we carry our light throughout a darkened world so that others may know and join you in your life. And we pray a blessing upon everybody here this Christmas day, this Lord's day, and we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.